Welcome to Attachment Theory in Action, a weekly podcast presented by the Knowledge Center at Chattuck. Our podcast is dedicated to therapists, social workers, counselors, and psychologists working with clients from an attachment-based perspective. Join host Karen Doyle Buckwalter for an insightful, informative, and inspiring conversation with leading attachment theory researchers and clinicians in the field. Today, Karen launches a series of discussions with Michael Trout about his videos. Karen and Michael open with part one of a two-part conversation on the importance of creating these videos. Part two will be released on Tuesday, December 10th. This is Karen Buckwalter, and I am delighted to be having Michael Trout coming back to the Attachment Theory in Action podcast for another series. This series will actually be about a variety of resources that he has produced. We're first going to focus on his videos, and uh, then later we will be focusing on some of his books. So I would like to, for listeners who don't know about Michael and his work, share a bit about his background. Michael has degrees in both philosophy and psychology, and he was uh, trained with Selma Freiberg in infant psychiatry as part of the Child Development Project of the University of Michigan Department of Psychiatry. He's been in the infant mental health field since 1968 and in private practice since 1979. Since 1986, he has directed the Infant Parent Institute, which is an institute engaged in research, clinical practice, and clinical training related to problems of attachment. He was the founding president of both the Michigan and the International Associations of Infant Mental Health, was on the charter editorial board of the Infant Mental Health Journal, served as regional vice president for the United States for the World Association of Infant Mental Health, and served on the board of directors and as editor of the newsletter of the the Association for Pre- and Perinatal Psychology and Health. In 1984, Michael won the Selma Freiberg Award for significant contributions to needs of infants and their families. In addition to publishing a number of book chapters and journal articles, Michael Trout has produced 16 clinical training videos that are used by universities and clinics around the world, including a six-hour video training series called The Awakening and Growth of the Human, Studies in Infant Mental Health. He has also written and produced five videos focusing on the unique perspective of babies on divorce, adoption, loss, domestic violence, and parental incarceration. And in fact, these videos are going to be the focus of the first part of this new series I'm doing with Michael Trout. He's also the co-author with Lori Thomas, uh, foster and adoptive mother Lori Thomas, who is also now a therapist, of the Jonathan Letters. He's the author of Baby Verses, the narrative poetry of infants and toddlers, and the producer of two meditation CDs, including See Me as a Person, Meditations for Sustaining Relationship-Based Care, and The Hope-Filled Parent, Meditations for Parents and Children who have been of parents of children who have been harmed. He also, in 2012, co-authored, along with Mary Colarudis, a textbook 
for healthcare providers called See Me as a Person. I want to draw special attention to that because I know we've been having more listeners from the medical field on the podcast, and the book See Me as a Person is just a tremendous resource for anyone working in the helping professions, although it is directed at those in healthcare settings. His final book, This Hallowed Ground, Four Decades in Infant Mental Health, was released in 2019 in audio format and donated to the Michigan Association for Infant Mental Health. So you can uh, go to their website in order to get that latest work of his. The ha- this hallowed ground. So he comes to us with a wealth of wisdom and experience. And Michael has become a good friend of mine as well as such a respected colleague and mentor. He's one of the most influential people in my professional life by far. And I'm just delighted to be opening a new series with him today. So here we go. Hey listeners, I have some exciting news for you. The book, Raising the Challenging Child, which has been co-authored with Debbie Reed and Wendy Lyons Sunshine, is available for pre-order and we want to tell you where to get it. Please go to our website, RaisingTheChallengingChild.com, for full details on how you can pre-order from your favorite bookseller. I know a lot of you are therapists and parents and really wanting to get the concepts of attachment theory and everything that we talk about in our podcast into practice practical nuggets for parents that you work with, children that you work with, even your own family. So we think this is just what you're going to be looking for. The book is filled with easy to implement, research-based, family-tested strategies. We hope you'll go out and pre-order today. Well, hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Attachment Theory in Action podcast. And I'm here again today with a familiar person and name, Michael Trout. Uh, He has been on the podcast before several times, and we're gearing up to start a new series with uh, Michael today that's going to be about his videos and books. And we're starting out with his uh, multiple transitions video series. There is a video by that name, but we're also going to be speaking about a, a number of videos he's made over the years that have a similar format. So welcome back, Michael. Thank you. Wonderful to be here. So glad that you agreed to do this. Your previous series was so popular, and I know listeners are going to really appreciate hearing more from you. Good. So about your videos, you know, one of the things that I often share and we've talked about in terms of attachment theory and, you know, being on the Attachment Theory in Action podcast, that video work has a very long history in the development of attachment theory, starting very early on, looking at the James Robertson's films that he made of childhood hospitalization, looking at assessments like the Ainsworth Strange situation. So video has been used a lot over the years related to attachment theory. And so I find it interesting that, that you began the use of video in terms of uh, helping people understand your concepts, helping people understand the mind of, of babies and toddlers. And I just want to get first for listeners, like how did you even conceive, hey, I'm going to make a video about some of this? Because this 
was at a time not like now where everybody's snapping a video and putting it on YouTube. This was prior to that, where a lot of thought would have had to go into production and how to do that. So just share with us what your vision was for that, that first one and what it was. Not only a lot of thought, but an incredible amount of expense and time and complexity. I, I made my first film probably close to 40 years ago, and uh, I still recall the many, 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 many hours in a studio in Lansing, Michigan, uh, literally cutting with a pair of scissors and taping together with scotch tape for every edit. There was no electronic editing of anything. Uh, it was, and it had to be done with equipment that cost many hundreds of thousands of dollars. Uh, I couldn't have begun to do it myself. I had to go to a very special and very expensive studio. And it's almost laughable to look back on it now and see the ease with which grade school children could make a video of that caliber and quality in a few minutes. Now, now was that, now because I know, although we're talking about uh, the transition series videos, what, you made videos before that uh, giving lectures, talks on, on infant mental health and infant parent psychotherapy. Now, so, and so, so those videos were even older than these, right? That's right. They began yes. in about 1980 with a challenge from an official with the uh, Department of Mental Health in Maine who, was, uh, who had asked me to speak there many times and now I was beginning to wonder what is the most efficient but also uh, effective way to get word out about early infant experience to the largest possible number of people in Maine, including rural Maine. And he challenged me to consider making a film, offered to help pay for it, and that's what got everything started. Okay. So I, should, I should say that even prior to that, we, we were all facing a problem. I mean, a simple view at the time would have said that the problem was simply that this was a very new idea and hardly anyone knew about it. But I believe that the bigger problems were... Now, a very new idea meaning what? Infant mental health. Yes, okay, I just wanna clarify, yes, okay. But I thought that the bigger problems were not just that nobody knew about it, but that we, we maybe didn't even know enough about it yet. We were still trying to discover, uh, in my view, the voice of the infant. What does he sound like? And I don't mean that literally. I mean, if he could speak, what would he tell us about life in the uterus, about life with domestic violence, about life with a, a, mother, a mother or father that's physically present but psychologically absent and so on. We were just beginning to discover that and to transmit what little we knew with word of mouth or lecture or writing was hopeless. It was too vague, too difficult to get one's hands around. But if you could show a child, if you could show a child suffering or struggling to, so to speak, speak, just like, since you mentioned James and Joyce Robertson, just like they did, it might be more successful. What, what they did accidentally, more than anything, uh, I had many, many hours of conversations with them back in the 
70s about what they had done, was take a situation that most people took for granted. A child's mother is having a second baby. The child goes into substitute care. Oh, well, he'll be fine. That was the common thought, and it is still pretty much the common thought, and it is often, in fact, the case. But some kids do not do fine. And John, the first child that they uh, filmed, did not do fine. But had you tried to describe his suffering merely being in substitute care, so to speak, with a round-the-clock babysitter, had you tried to describe that he, he was unhappy, it would have had very close to zero impact. But those people who saw John, because James Robertson and Joyce came to the center and filmed him over many, many hours, if you could see John wailing and struggling and fussing against the chest of the substitute caregiver who had taken the most interest in him, a young nurse, and then when her shift was over, his finding that she was gone and his trying to figure out what to do next and beginning to refuse food and so on. And then when his father came to visit, he couldn't allow himself to nuzzle into his father. He was beginning to reject all caregivers now. When we could actually show that to, for example, a judge who was thinking about putting a child in foster care and thinking it wouldn't really make any difference or show it to uh, parents or to educators or others who were working with children who had had experiences of being apart from their primary caregivers. That changed the world. Yes. And I know because I can tell you that it changed me. I can remember as if it were yesterday, and it's nearly 50 years ago, seeing that film for the very first time and deciding in my own pathetic way to try to defend my own early losses, deciding that it was a setup, that John didn't really exist, that they just made up some baby and they smacked him around and then turned on the camera to get him to cry like that and be that miserable. I couldn't stand the idea that I had just watched a perfectly normal two-parent uh, child in substitute care in that much suffering. I couldn't stand it. And so I had to make it up, make it into something it wasn't, just so I could survive. Mm. So that's what taught me that a way to not only discover the voice of the infant, but to transmit the voice of the infant to others would best be through film, rather than the written word or lectures. Yes. Mm -hmm. And so when this fellow in Maine said, say, why don't you make a film? I was right there. Yes. Um, great. And and I know that that you I believe those film that film series which which we're talking about with a more of a lecture series has has since been donated to the state. Is that right? Well, uh, the the state of Maine has had rights to use and and marketing of those films six hours of them for all these decades. Okay, okay. But for the rest of the country, they're out of, officially out of production. Okay. 
Okay, great. So, so, so then moving on. So, but, but it's a very different thing to, to create those videos in terms of talking about topics, you know, that those were, and now getting back to what you were just saying to, to really force people to hear the inner world, the inner, you know, what the baby would be saying. Um, and so gentle transitions, a newborn baby's view of adoption um, was one of the first ones was in, in, in this, you know, Michael, we're going to be calling it a series, but it didn't start out a series, right? That's right. <laughs> so I wish, I wish I could take credit for having been <laughs> proactive and that thoughtful, but really as topics came to mind, uh, usually through clinical work, um, I would I would think my goodness I, I need to write this down I need to write down what I think the parent was experiencing and the child was experiencing and turn it into a narrative first a kind of a poem and then and then when it seemed appropriate I would carry that one step further and turn the poem into a film okay okay so um, so for for each of these, you you wrote and you know i want to just give an overall flavor of all of them and then we're going to go more in depth with each of them but um you gave an uh you wrote an actual script is that okay mostly, and mostly those scripts were were as if the child were speaking not all of them um one of them in the later part of this series for example is is what i imagined uh, a parent would be experiencing under the circumstances of taking into care uh, a, a desperately uh, distraught child into foster care or adoption. But mostly I tried to write scripts about what I thought babies, if they could speak, would say to us uh, about their experience. And yes. gent gentle transitions was what a perfectly normal, happy baby being adopted by a perfectly normal, happy family would say the assumption is that he would say yippee aren't i lucky and everybody would be happy and mostly they are but that doesn't mean that there's no voice that doesn't mean that there's no experience that he wishes he could draw our attention to mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. so this was uh i'm thinking of the the speaking for the baby technique um that I'm, I'm drawing a blank on who actually developed that, but you know that, that just came came to mind that you know you were you were doing this well before that sort of model came out, um, just through your gathering notes and your clinical practice. So so that was the gentle transitions one, a newborn's view of adoption. And you kind of given you know what what you were thinking there, and then the next one. Um, was multiple transitions a child's view of foster care tell me a little bit about that one an overview on that one and why you thought it was needed and well that one arose out of pain i have to admit uh, certainly mine my pain in seeing children suffer mightily having one broken placement after another but also the pain of seeing that grown-ups, even very smart and very nice ones, like nice judges and nice child welfare workers and nice foster and uh, adoptive mothers and fathers, 
all seem to have a vested interest in overlooking the possibility that multiple placement, multiple loss, meant something to the child. We had a profound vested interest in keeping it an okay thing. So that, for example, um, a parent who was hitting their child, or we suspected they were, and we wanted to come in and remove that child, we wanted to feel okay about that, if not semi-righteous about that, that it was pure and simple, the child was in danger, and we were saving them. And there's a great deal of truth to that mission and to that point of view, but it completely overlooks the other part of the puzzle, which is that while we're having this missionary zeal, while we're doing this wonderful thing of saving the child from possibly abusive or neglectful parents, we're also exposing the child to loss. And if he's um, a naughty baby, by which I mean to see a, say a perfectly normal baby who reacts to loss, he may kick back a little bit. And if he kicks back a little bit, the foster parents may say, gee, you're a little more trouble than we had in mind. Uh, and they call the child welfare worker and the child welfare worker says, oh, that's okay, we've got another home and moves him. Again, holding tight to the original idea that good is being done here because he's being saved from danger while not noticing that bad is being done at the same time. And now it's being done twice. He was removed from his first family. Now he's removed from his foster family. And now he's into the second family. And now he's really upset and angry and confused. And lo and behold, his behavior causes that placement to break. So that's what I was beginning to see. And I was miserably unsuccessful in trying to alert people to that. So, you know, I wanted to ask you this after, after we talk about each video, but I, I didn't um, with the general transitions and now on to the multiple transitions, but you can ask with, with both of them since I forgot to ask. So what was the reception? Well, to gentle transitions, the reception was warm and happy. I mean, it's a, it's a pretty easy and light film. Everybody's normal and um, there aren't any real big problems. It's just that the child wishes he could be listened to. The his message is really very simple. This is not innocuous. That I came into your lovely arms, that you uh, made space for me, that you um, took me in when I, I don't know, my, my, my first mom and dad couldn't or didn't want to take care of me. Um, or or whatever the circumstance was, that was all pretty happy. Okay. The message was only, it's not innocuous. It's happy, but it's not innocuous. With multiple transitions, the original, um, that is to say for the first five to 10 years, response was anything from, you jerk, why didn't you tell me how many boxes of Kleenex we would need, to you jerk, you meaning me, the producer and writer, uh, the, you're lying. It isn't like that. It can't be like that. If it were like that, the whole system would crumble. If I, as a judge who just saw that movie, believed what you just said, 
I wouldn't be able to make any decisions. I wouldn't be able to take any children away or put any children anywhere. So, so they, wanted a, the, they wanted to deny the real reality of what was in there. They did, but I, I, I want to emphasize that it wasn't ignorance, I think. Well, it was in the nice sense of the word. I mean, people just didn't know what went on behind the scenes in babies' souls and hearts. Babies didn't know, even though we'd been alerted to it way back in the 60s and 70s with some of the early films you mentioned, people didn't really know that babies who lose their mothers and fathers notice it and react to it. So not knowing that, we went about our business creating loss and separation. And when some, some guy named Trout comes along and points it out, rather vividly in these films, it hurts. And so I, I almost, I don't want to use the word denial because it's almost too mean. It's more like, oh my God, that couldn't be true. If that were true, I as a foster parent, I as a judge, I as a child welfare worker, I couldn't live with myself. Is it, could we compare it to how you felt the need to write a different narrative of the Robertson film of John when you first saw it? Exactly right. And I think that's why I was so tender with the people who were in such denial about watching multiple transitions. That's why I didn't condemn them because, boy, I had done virtually the same thing a couple of decades before. It's hard to see a child suffer but it's even harder when you know that you're culpable or feel like you might've been culpable. Yes. Yes. And so you said in the, the beginning, it was that, 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 that leads us to believe that maybe later on it was received. Let's, well, let's think about this. How long has that been out? When did you say it was made? Oh gosh. Multiple was one of the earliest ones, which so it would have been probably, 1990 maybe something like that we're talking like 30 years yeah yeah so how and, and did things evolve in terms of uh maybe openness to to hearing i'm not sure how to say it because i want to capture that that you understood why people reacted as they did but did reaction change over time let's just say that well um i think that the reaction that I've described continued, but because it was so powerful for so many people, even though they might have been angry about it or hurt about it or troubled by it, they still told everybody and their brother about it. Oh, you got to see this. Before we rule on this case, uh, let's all have a little meeting, the judge and the probation officer and the, the caseworker and the psychologist and watch this movie that we just heard about. Yes. And that was starting to happen a great, great, great deal that I couldn't keep copies of that made fast enough to fill the need during the 90s in particular. Yes. And so I suppose that made a difference over the long run about acceptance. Yes. It wasn't just people put, putting up their hands saying no, no, no. It was more like, putting up their hands and then putting their hands to their faces and say, oh my gosh, what have we been doing? Um, let's think about this some more. Can we include the idea 
that two harms are always done in a child welfare case. The harm of the original abuse is done, and that's the one we stop when we remove, and then the harm of removal is done, followed often by uh, more removals as placements are disrupted. And so we, we brought our hands to our faces and say, said, began to say, what can we do about this? Mm -hmm. That coincided with a great deal of academic research that was coming out in the 80s and 90s uh, that was saying a similar sort of thing. And so now everybody and their brother was starting to talk about permanency planning and thinking we've, we've got to pre prevent so many disruptions. We've got to move more quickly to get permanency. And that, of course, led to all sorts of additional problems, but nonetheless, we were all talking about it for the first time. Mm -hmm. You know, before we move on to the next film, I want to say just a couple general things about this series that what you're saying prompted for, for me. One is um, related to um, reaction. I mean, and I, I've shared these films many times. I, I try not to speak without sharing one of your resources because they're so powerful and helpful. But I see so many reactions. I'll see some people riveted and some people become tearful. Some people have had to leave the room because they're so upset. I'll see others disengage and, and now start staring. When I first started showing them, everyone didn't have a cell phone, but now I'll see people disengage and start staring at a cell phone screen or you know distracting themselves. It, it is so interesting in terms of the narrative we can tolerate or watch or what we do with all of that. I don't, I don't know if you wanna, I, I assume your experience has been the same about the films in terms of the actual audience watching them and a wide variety of reactions. Of course. And it means that the facilitator, me or you, or any number of other people who have facilitated discussions about this, has got to have exactly the right sort of gentle, quiet, accepting spirit. Um, we, we cannot get into debates with people about truth particularly about truth about children's voices and about their own experience. So I suppose one thing I've learned is to be very, very quiet and very, very gentle about the discussion and not push a point at all. Just let people experience what they do. Mm -hmm. And then the second thing um, I've noticed about the films over the years uh, for myself, as well as, you know, groups at Chaddock who have seen them multiple times for various reasons, they never lose their impact. Like, never. Like, you know, some films you see like this, once you sort of know what's coming, it doesn't have the same effect anymore. Um, and whether that's because you've seen it before, whether that's because you know to kind of shut down or, or do what you do, but one of the things whenever I talk about these films, I say is it impacts me the same way, just as strongly as it did the first time I saw it. Like, how can that be? Why, why, why do they do, why are they able to do that? I haven't experienced that with other types of films. 
Well, I, I have an idea. I want to know it. <laughs> and it's really pretty primitive. It's not very uh, sophisticated, but I think it's very cool. It, it has to do with the very thing we had to learn in, in dyadic psychotherapy with infants and their parents. We learned early on, or if we had a brain, we learned early on, that we could not give lessons to parents. We could not teach them much of anything, actually, and very little, oh, next to nothing dyadically, that's for sure. We had to come in the side door. We had to find a way to awaken their experience, but not too much that it would overwhelm them and, and bring out the defenses. So we had to be thoughtful and quiet about teaching. And having learned that with parents, I think exactly that same idea uh, was carried into the films. If people are gonna learn extremely complex, developmentally complex ideas, um, like, the, for example, had we been able to say, if you remove a child, he will be miserable for the rest of his life. That would have not only been wrong and stupid, but very convenient. So it isn't like that. Development is complex. And so if you want to teach about it and teach about an idea like it's not innocuous when you're adopted at birth, or if you have a whole bunch of placements, it will affect you in ways, certain ways. None of that is, is linear. None of that is easily teachable. None of that is left brain. It's musical. It's spiritual. It's complicated. And for people to take it in means we have to come in the side door. We have to come in through the part of the brain that tolerates feelings and complexity. And that's what I think the, the, these, the films usually do I have failed on some of the films, uh, but usually I think they succeed in coming in the side door. Mm. Yeah, good. Well, hey, we uh, are going to take a real short break here because we'll be moving into part two of the podcast. Um, so. I'm just going to take a very brief break here as we gear up to, to talk more about the rest of the films. Do you like what Karen and Michael are talking about? Do you want to learn more and explore his books? We have an exclusive discount code for our podcast listeners. Go to the TKC store at tkcchaddock.org and apply the code TROUT20 for 20% off any item in the Michael Trout collection. That's discount code TROUT20, T-R-O-U-T, 20, to get 20% off any item in the Michael Trout collection in the TKC store at tkcchaddock.org. This concludes part one of the two-part conversation between Karen Doyle Buckwalter and Michael Trout on the importance of creating videos. Part two will be released on Tuesday, December 10th. Thank you for joining us for this edition of the Attachment Theory in Action podcast. Please follow our site, tkcchaddock.org, or subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, or Podbean for future episodes. If you enjoyed our podcast, please leave a review and share with your professional network. For additional resources, training opportunities, and blogs, please log on to tkcchaddock.org. We hope you'll join us again as we continue to explore the world of adoption, trauma, and attachment theory.